All right. Here we go. Don't ask. Just, just don't ask what's going on. You don't want to know. Vladimir Putin's number one political opponent is Alexei Navalny. He's the former mayor of Moscow who, after being poisoned and surviving, returned to Russia and was sentenced to 19 years in prison. But Navalny, as of yesterday, is nowhere to be found. Lawyers for Navalny say they have tried to meet with him, but the Russian prison, where he's supposed to be, says they, they've lost him. The people in charge of the prison camp say Navalny is not even listed as an inmate. Lawyers for Navalny say they checked with other prison camps in the immediate vicinity to see if he had been transferred, and none of those camps have any record of him. Navalny is believed to have gotten sick from being kept inside solitary confinement with little to no ventilation or food. Lawyers for Navalny say it's been six days since they had any contact with him. It is generally agreed that time is running out for Ukraine. Russia has resumed airstrikes on Kiev. That's the first time in nearly three months. As Putin and his generals seem empowered, convinced the $60 billion in emergency aid Biden wants for Ukraine is going to be tied up in Congress for the foreseeable future. Speaker Mike Johnson says he wants to support Ukraine, has gone on record saying the last thing he wants is Putin marching through Europe. But he has tied border security to aid for Ukraine. And now Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who was all in on funding for Ukraine, seems to have caved to the Putin wing of the party and agreed that they should demand that the Ukraine supplemental $60 billion be tied to border security. McConnell said this about attaching border security to the Ukraine supplemental. They, the Democrats, don't want to deal with the border security in the context of the supplemental. We do because we know that will guarantee an outcome Guaranteeing an outcome means it's hostage-taking. That's what it's called in Congress. If the Democrats want Ukraine funding, then they have to also vote for border security. It's hostage-taking. The, the problem is border security is impossible to get passed. Congress hasn't been able to pass any meaningful legislation concerning the border in more than 20 years. And there's simply no way they're going to iron out a border bill, attach it to the Ukraine supplemental, and get it passed by Thursday night when the House leaves for their Christmas vacation. That means no Ukraine supplemental until after the new year. Russian President Vladimir Zelensky, not Russian, Ukrainian President Zelensky, arrived in Washington Monday to speak with Joe Biden and then visit the Senate and the House to meet with Speaker Mike Johnson to lobby in person for the funding. Last week, his chief of staff and the Speaker of the Ukrainian Pre Parliament were in town lobbying hard for the money. They've said, if we don't get the $60 billion from the United States, we're going to lose. Zelensky 
was going to brief senators via Zoom last week, but a White House briefing for those senators uh, hours prior to Zelensky's scheduled appearance, that briefing broke down with Republicans like Lindsey Graham, uh, Republican senators angrily accusing the Biden administration of ignoring the border problem. When Senator Chuck Schumer, the Democratic majority leader, tried to explain this is an intelligence briefing on Ukraine, not the border. Several Republican senators called him a liar, said that's not what they were told the briefing was going to be about. And they demanded to know why America's border is less important than Ukraine's. McConnell, surprisingly, Mitch McConnell, the Republican minority leader in the Senate, joined the attack on Schumer. And this is the first time McConnell has backed away from a full-throated endorsement of aid for Ukraine. All year, Mitch McConnell has been on board funding Zelensky, and now he's tiptoeing backwards. J.D. Vance, the Republican senator from Ohio, said on CNN yesterday that America is just going to have to accept that Ukraine must cede territory to Russia. What, Crimea, the Donbass region? What what parts of uh, Ukraine should they cede? Back in August of 2022, a Gallup poll showed that 66% of Americans thought that this country ought to assist the Ukrainians in kicking Russia out of their country. But a new poll in October of this year shows support for Ukraine in this country has fallen 12 points. Now, with only 54% of Americans still thinking Ukraine is worth the support. So, with all that swirling around Washington in the lead up to the holiday break, the one thing keeping Joe Biden up at night is Ukraine. That and his prostate. But mostly Ukraine. The feeling in the White House, from what I've been told, is everything can wait. Israel, Taiwan, the border, the 2024 budget, even Section 702 of the Foreign uh, Intelligence Surveillance Act, which expires on December 31st, even that can wait. Right now, what, what concerns the Biden White House the most is Ukraine. Ukraine is the most pressing issue for the president. As of December 31st, America has no more money to fund Ukraine. Now, that's what Shalanda Young, the White House budget director, says. But there are probably some slush funds in the Pentagon that we don't know about. We are coming up on the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion. Joe Biden is fighting a proxy war against Putin in Ukraine because this administration, like the Obama administration, and like the Hillary Clinton administration would have believed, they all believe Vladimir Putin is, as they say, an existential threat, not just to Eastern Europe, 
not just to not just to Europe because of the military. They're not just frightened of Putin's military. They believe that Vladimir Putin is an existential threat to Western democracy. Now, whether or not you agree with this, I'm just telling you what the Democratic leadership believes. They believe Vladimir Putin is an existential threat to Western democracy. They don't believe that uh, the Democrats don't believe uh, the business people from Davos, the neoliberal world order. They don't believe that those people are an existential threat to uh, Western democracy. They believe, they genuinely believe that Vladimir Putin is more than just a military threat. He is an ideological threat spreading authoritarianism to countries like Hungary, Poland, Brazil, France, Germany, Great Britain, and here in the United States. He's not creating the authoritarianism, but the Democrats believe he's helping it along. When you go all the way back to 2016, to the FBI's crossfire hurricane investigation into Russian interference with our elections, since 2016, the FBI, the Justice Department, and our intelligence agencies have been consistent throughout the Obama administration and the Trump administration, as well as the Biden administration. Our intelligence agencies, even under Trump, the FBI, even under Trump, which is why he had a fire Comey and McCabe, they have been consistent in saying that Russia is interfering in our democracy, in all Western democracies, trying to destabilize them, spreading confusion and misinformation, making it increasingly difficult for our government to function. I'm not saying they're right. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm not saying they're partly right or partly wrong. I'm telling you what they, the Democrats, believe. This is what they believe. This is what the FBI believes. This is what our intelligence agencies believe. Whether you believe Putin helped put Trump into office doesn't matter what you believe. I'm telling you, that is what a lot of top-level Democrats believe. Yes, they're making excuses. Hillary didn't campaign in Michigan. She was a horrible candidate. But part of the explanation for Trump being president, part of it is Vladimir Putin. And one of the reasons I believe Joe Biden wants to keep this proxy war going in Ukraine is to trap Putin in a quagmire, to weaken Russia's ability to meddle with the affairs of Eastern Europe and other democracies around the world. I believe this is what Biden believes. Fight Putin in Ukraine so we don't have to fight him in Eastern Europe, Western Europe, or right here in the United States, not militarily. I don't believe Biden is worried that Putin is going to invade Western Europe or America. 
What he's concerned about is the sub Rosa massive cyber war taking place between Russia and the Western world. It's something that we can't see, smell or feel, but it's going on. The Biden administration and the Democratic leadership believe Putin is working to destabilize this country as well as other Western democracies, move them towards the right, towards authoritarian regimes. Why? Because authoritarian regimes would be more sympathetic to Russia and they would be less sympathetic to a pluralistic hegemony like the United States of America. Republicans are increasingly open these days about not wanting to support Ukraine. They found their voice. It's been almost two years, but it's emerging. They were kicking and screaming on the first rounds of emergency supplementals for Ukraine, but the Russians are finding their voice in support of Putin. Vivek Ramaswamy and now J.D. Vance, the Ohio senator, Republican, are saying that what in the past would be unthinkable for Republicans to say out loud, and that is Ukraine should cede territory to the Russians. It is the Republicans who constantly refer to Democrats as the great appeasers who learned nothing from Hitler. But more and more Republicans these days are saying, if you just give Putin what he wants, he will stop. It is the Republicans who want to appease Putin the same way it was the Republicans who wanted to appease Hitler. Because Putin and Hitler were authoritarians that Republicans could do business with. The Heritage Foundation is a right-wing think tank funded by oil billionaires and other assorted Republican miscreants. They are preparing Project 2025, a government in a box. A government in a box for Donald Trump to just open up so he can hit the ground running on day one of his second administration. Project 2025, the plan is to dismantle the administrative state and promote what is called the unitary executive theory. The unitary executive theory, which says the president is the more powerful of the three branches of government. The unitary executive theory is what Attorney General Bill Barr subscribed to. This is what most far-right Republicans believe. They believe democracy is messy, that Congress can't be trusted, and neither can the Supreme Court, and that the most efficient use of our government is to invest most of the power inside the executive branch. And Project 2025 calls for the stripping out of the administrative state, which is part of the executive branch. They want to fire at least half the administrative state. And by getting rid of the administrative state, by getting rid of regulators, scientists, and lawyers, 
it concentrates all the power in the executive branch inside the Oval Office. The administrative state is about three million employees who all work for the executive branch. The Heritage Foundation wants Donald Trump to fire half the administrative state so that all the decisions emanate from the Oval Office. It allows a president to rule by decree rather than being forced to run every executive order through a series of checks, of, you know, through the appropriate agencies. You know, before a president issues an executive agency, he's got to look into before the president issues an executive order, he's got to run it by the appropriate agencies. If it's going to be about gun control, you got to go speak to uh, uh, the, the uh, arms, tobacco, firearms administration. This is authoritarianism. This is the concentration of power inside the Oval Office, not just the executive branch, inside the Oval Office. So the president can act unilaterally. It is the unitary. What is it? I wrote it down. I, I always I have a block. The unitary theory of the executive branch. What is it called? Let me just double check. You can correct me. Hang on. Uh, unitary executive theory. That's what it's called. I got a lot on my mind. So concentrate all the power inside the Oval Office. This is how Viktor Orban the Hungarian prime minister solidified all his power. He's been the duly elected prime minister for more than 10 years. And because his party, his office controls the radio and television station, uh, stations licenses, he funds newspapers, he gives out jobs, he's able to win elections. He's not going anywhere. Orban, Viktor Orban of Hungary, should... It should not surprise you, he is a huge fan of Vladimir Putin's. And when Vladimir Putin first invaded Ukraine, Orban reluctantly joined the West. He was treaty-bound as a member of NATO and the European Union to go along with the West. But Orban, like Putin, is a white Christian nationalist. Like Putin, Orban demonizes the LGBTQ community, cracks down on speech. And over the years, the European Parliament has voted to discipline Hungary over Viktor Orban's undermining of democratic values. Therefore, it should come as no surprise that Viktor Orban is a darling of the Republican Party, Remember when Tucker Carlson was always doing his show from Budapest, talking to Viktor Orban? It's why Viktor Orban spoke at CPAC two years ago and received a standing ovation after a speech in which he insisted the West must protect its Judeo-Christian principles, a speech that said the LGBTQ community is the enemy of Judeo-Christian principles and he added, if you believe in Christ, you can never be wrong. 
During Sunday's inauguration of Argentine President Javier Milei, President Zelensky of Ukraine walked up to Hungarian President Viktor Orban to know if he still had Hungary's support. Because last week, Orban indicated to the European Union that Hungary would veto giving Ukraine 50 billion dollar 50 billion euros in its battle against Putin. He also signaled that he was against Ukraine being admitted into the EU. As Reuters reports, Orban is proud of his relationship with Vladimir Putin and has not severed them since the invasion of Ukraine. So this week, while Zelensky is in Washington making a last-minute visit to Washington to lobby for passage of the $60 billion Ukraine supplemental, Hungary's Viktor Orban is hosting a week-long panel in Washington, D.C. at the Heritage Foundation, outlining why Congress should not give any more aid to Ukraine. Viktor Orban says he will veto any more funding for Ukraine that comes out of the EU. And now he is hosting a week-long panel in Washington, D.C. It's a two-day, I'm sorry, it's a two-day panel. Sorry, I got that wrong. A two-day panel in Washington, D.C. at the Heritage Foundation explaining why Republicans should vote against the $60 billion supplemental for Ukraine. According to The Guardian, representatives from Hungary will be meeting with Republican lawmakers on the Hill in closed-door sessions, urging them to block aid for Ukraine. So, they're lobbying, and then there's this two-day event at the Heritage Foundation featuring speakers from Hungary's CPAC. There's a, a thriving CPAC in Hungary, and they'll be explaining why aid to Ukraine puts America last. That's what they say. Aid to Ukraine puts America last. The Heritage Foundation's uh, lobbying arm has been fighting more aid to Ukraine all year. They've been against it all year. This is the Heritage Foundation. This is, they, they helped Donald Trump fill his cabinet, find, along with the Federalist Society, find Supreme Court justices. And the Heritage Foundation with Project 2025 is vetting employees of the Trump administration as we speak. They want to hit the ground running. The Guardian reports that Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, has been promoting a transatlantic alliance pushing for Christian nationalism, a hardline stance on immigration, uh, pushing back on the LGBTQ community's agenda, and most importantly, opposing anyone who claims Orban, the Republicans, or Trump are moving the world towards anti-democratic authoritarian rule. That's part of the agenda, to deny that Orban is an authoritarian, to deny that Trump has 
authoritarian impulses. He, I'm not going to even dignify what Trump has been saying about what he's going to do on day one. So we live in a republic, not a democracy. In a republic, we don't vote on issues. We rely on professional politicians to make decisions for us. We don't vote on issues. We vote on the men and women to vote on those issues for us. Now, the issue for me when it comes to Ukraine is complicated. For almost two years now, I've been saying that Putin is a war criminal, but I've also been saying, why is America so insistent on funding the war instead of finding diplomacy, backdoor diplomacy? Uh, so it's complicated and I'm not an expert. I speak to experts, but I'm not an expert. So this is what it comes down to in our system, in our two-party system. This is, till we change it, this is the way it is, okay? I'm not making a judgment. I'm just telling you this is the way it is. And maybe it can help you decide where you stand. If you are on the side of Zelensky and Ukraine, then you are on the side of Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. See, in a republic, I have to find people I trust, politicians who I trust. I trust Bernie Sanders. Joe Biden, not as much as I trust Bernie Sanders, okay? I, there are a couple of lawmakers who I make my decisions based on what they believe. Bernie Sanders said last week, quote, it is imperative that we support Ukraine's valiant effort to defend itself against Putin's invasion. If Ukraine falls, it will be a signal to Putin that he can continue to expand his authoritarian aggression against democratic nations, unquote. That's Bernie on the Ukraine supplemental. Bernie says we need to support Ukraine immediately, okay? I also am on the fence with Benjamin Netanyahu and Israel, and I don't know, you'll notice I've been a little cagey here, not, you know, when, not sure what I believe. Uh, I know what I feel, but I'm not sure what I believe. Bernie says no support for Israel. He's against funding Israel. He's for $4 billion in humanitarian aid. And he just announced that he's against giving Benjamin Netanyahu $10 billion worth of weapons. So if you're trying to make a decision on where you stand, it's good to know where Bernie stands. And by the way, one of the reasons Bernie is so important and so beloved and so great is he didn't come out with his position immediately on Israel. You don't have to have an opinion uh, while something is going on. You can, you can study it and then come up with an opinion. 
but he supports Ukraine. And I'm talking about Ukraine on today's show. I'll get to Israel later in the week. So if you're against supporting Ukraine, if you're against $60 billion going towards Ukraine, then if you're against it, you're on the side of Viktor Orban, the Heritage Foundation, J.D. Vance, Vivek Ramaswamy, and most members of the Freedom Caucus. So do your own research, as they say, make your own decisions, but it helps to know where the battle lines have been drawn in Washington, D.C. And now I've made it clear to you who supports funding Zelensky and who supports Zelensky ceding territory to Russia. We are now hearing more and more Republicans saying that Zelensky should be ceding Crimea and the Donbass region to Russia. Battle lines are drawn. You know what the Democrats, what Joe Biden believes, and now you know what the Republicans believe. This is the mop-up for December, what is it, 11th, 2023. Thank you for finding me. I'm David Feldman. Please like this episode so I remain in your feed. Subscribe to my newsletter and my channel. Don't forget to take me wherever you go by downloading this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We've reached the home stretch for 2023. The House starts its Christmas holiday on Thursday, and the Senate is scheduled to begin its recess on Friday. Here is what has to be accomplished between now and Friday. This is the agenda. We need a 2024 budget. The continuing resolution expires by the end of February, by the middle of February. We need a National Defense Authorization Act to fund our troops. We need to decide whether to reauthorize Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. We need to pass the first border bill in nearly 20 years that addresses the migrants escaping gangs and oppression in Central America. And there's the what is now a 110, used to be 105, now it's a $110 billion emergency supplemental where Congress needs to address military aid for Taiwan and other Pacific countries who are concerned with China's military expansion. Israel is supposed to get $14 billion and Ukraine is supposed to get $60 billion. Now, whether you and I like the agenda That is the agenda. These are the issues our leadership on both sides of the aisle and the president have decided are the most pressing. Nothing on the environment, nothing on climate disaster, nothing on raising the minimum wage, passing the PRO Act, which would make it easier for workers to form unions, nothing on expanding Medicaid, expanding Medicare, relieving student debt, or tackling the erosion of voting rights. That is not on the plate between now and Friday, because 
What's also not on the plate is legislation that would overturn the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. We may need a constitutional amendment to do that, maybe not. But Congress isn't putting getting money out of politics on the plate. Getting money out of politics is not on the plate this week. That's why most of what's on the plate is about how much wealth will be transferred from our national treasury into the arms manufacturers and several other nefarious, greedy corporations. This is what, between now and Friday, it really is about transferring wealth to the billionaires. For example, under the $110 billion emergency supplemental, the question on the plate this week is how much will be transferred to the owners of private detention facilities if the border bill is folded into this supplemental? How much money private contractors like Booz Allen will get paid to help the NSA monitor our emails and phone calls if they go ahead and reauthorize the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, Section 702? You know, Edward Snowden, speaking of Section 702, is hiding in Russia because he exposed how the NSA spies on ordinary citizens. Now, Edward Snowden was a private contractor working for Booz Allen, which at the time was owned partly by the Carlyle Group. They're a private equity organization that might be the world's largest arms profiteer. And Edward Snowden was not a government employee. In other words, he didn't get a check from the federal government. He didn't get a check from the NSA. The NSA hired Booz Allen as a contractor, and Edward Snowden worked for Booz Allen, and he had access to the NSA spying program, so he was able to leak it. How does that make you feel? Booz Allen is an international consulting firm that provides services to businesses and governments all around the world. And a low-level employee of Booz Allen, Edward Snowden, was handling classified documents, and he was the one who leaked the spying program. And he's the one. He's the one who had to go into hiding in Russia not the CEO of Booz Allen. And so that's the agenda between now and Friday. Beefing up our national security state, money for ICE, money for the border, money for private detention facilities along the border, money to give weapons to our border patrol, to Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. And 60% of that will be a transfer of wealth to corporations and billionaires. 60% of that money for weapons, as the Biden administration desperately reminded us this week in order to get the funding passed, 60% of that money stays right here in the United States, providing jobs for defense manufacturing plants, 
that are spread out across America. So we're talking about an agenda that pretty much transfers money out of the Treasury into the coffers of the billionaire class. The National Defense Authorization Act also has to be passed. That's the money for our annual massive defense bill. Close to $900 billion to keep our war machine humming. But despite $900 billion for defense allocated for 2024, it's still not enough for Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, and protecting the border. Right? We're going to give the military $900 billion. But if you want to protect Israel and Ukraine and Taiwan, that's going to cost you an additional $110 billion over and above our annual defense spending bill. They can't find the money in the $900 billion and the slush funds that we don't know about. They can't find the money for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan in the regular budget. And they have to figure out the 2024 budget to fund the entire government. They have to do all that by Thursday night. They can't seem to agree, can't even agree on what the top line spending for all of this will be. In other words, if they can't agree on top line spending, they can't agree on how much we have to appropriate. Basically, Congress is throwing a party and they're asking everybody, what should we buy for the party? And we're saying, I don't know, how much are you willing to spend on the party? And Congress is saying, we're not sure, but go ahead and fight over what kind of cake you want and how many people we should invite. Without a top line spending number, they can't appropriate. The budget process starts at the beginning of every year. It begins with the president proposing his version of a budget. President Biden, at the beginning of the year, proposed a $6.9 trillion budget. Now, it's time for everybody to take a nap. Okay, this is going to get really boring. So you may want to stop listening because it's going to get really boring. In the budget, there is what is called discretionary spending and mandatory spending. I hear these terms thrown around like I'm supposed to know what they mean. Some of you know what it means. And if you're like me, you once knew what it meant. You forgot what it meant. You looked it up. So you knew what it meant. And then you forgot what it meant. And then you looked it up again. It's hard to remember this stuff because the people in charge of the budget process don't want us to participate. So they keep it confusing. Let me remind us how the budget works. Let me go full screen here. The budget, wow, is divided into three buckets. There's discretionary spending, mandatory spending, and then the interest on the bonds we sell to pay for the debt we accrue by spending more than the Internal Revenue Service was able to collect. Three buckets. Are you awake? Everybody awake? Anybody still here? Three buckets. There's discretionary. 
mandatory. And then there's the interest payments on the Treasury bills to pay for the budget deficit. Okay. Discretionary spending is what the fight over the budget is really about. Mandatory spending is mandatory. You can't fight about it. There's very little to argue. And the third bucket, the interest on the debt, that's got to be paid. Otherwise, our credit rating is destroyed and the government can't borrow any more money because nobody would buy our treasury bonds, which are still considered the safest investment in the world. So this is what the 2024 budget is. 8% of the 2024 budget, if we spend $7 trillion in 2024, 8% of that goes towards paying the interest on the $33 trillion debt that we have. 26% of the 2024 budget would be discretionary spending, and 66% would be mandatory spending. Okay, let's talk about the first bucket Wake up. Come on, wake up. The first bucket is discretionary spending. That is what we can spend with discretion. It's the spending you and I and our members of Congress and the president get to fight about. It's money spent at our own discretion. I'm helping you with a mnemonic now. Why is it called discretionary spending? Because we can raise and lower discretionary spending at our own discretion. Discretionary spending, however, also includes military spending, which, you know, we all know that's not really discretionary. They say it's discretionary, but it's not. Whatever we spent on the military last year is automatically going to be spent again this year, and then you add another $100 billion or so. But they call it discretionary. But politically, we know there's no choice here. It's, uh, we know both parties are never going to cut military spending. But they call it discretionary spending. And that's part of the discretionary uh, spending bucket. And inside that discretionary spending bucket, okay, inside that discretionary spending bucket, we have 45% of that discretionary spending bucket is military spending. Uh, yeah, okay. That would be the National Defense Authorization Act, which Congress is supposed to pass before the holiday break. It's one of the 12 appropriations bills that make up the 2024 budget. It's defense spending. It's a no-brainer. And it has to be passed before the holiday break because if Congress can't pass defense spending before Christmas, they're not going to be able to pass anything. So that's 45% of the discretionary spending. That's uh, military. And Right there, the arrow points to discretionary spending. That's uh, 55% of discretionary spending is non-military. 55% of discretionary spending is non-military. And that right there 
is what all the fighting is about. What we spend on keeping the government running, paying the salaries of the millions of federal employees, or some call it the administrative state, that's the big monster Republicans want to dismantle. Non-military discretionary spending, 55% of discretionary spending. It's things like the EPA, the CDC, the NIH, the Department of Transportation, all the agencies that regulate you know, the FDA, the Department of Agriculture, all the millions of federal employees who make sure our food, drugs, and roads are safe. The people who warn us to get the way out, get the way, get away from a hurricane. Republicans either want to get rid of that or defund it. The Justice Department, the FBI, and of course, the Internal Revenue Service, that's all in that 55% discretionary bucket. That's the non-military bucket of the discretionary funding. So let's go back. Are you awake? You still believe in a democracy or should we just go to fascism and not have to worry about this shit? So of the 2024 budget, right, of let's say a $7 trillion budget, the argument is only over discretionary spending. See that? 26%. That's it. There's the mandatory spending. That's 66%. There's no argument there. And the interest is 8% of the budget. There's no argument there. The argument is over 26% of the budget, which is discretionary. And of the discretionary part of the budget... 45% is spent on the military, and 55% is non-military. So nearly half of the 26% of the entire budget is military, 45%. And so all the fighting and the arguing right now is pretty much over the 50% of the 26% percent allocated for discretionary spending. So basically, we're arguing over about, let's say, 14 percent of the entire seven trillion dollar budget. The rest is spoken for. You know, the military is non-negotiable. So they're arguing right now about 14 percent of the entire budget. Because 66 percent of the entire budget is what is called mandatory spending. This is discretionary spending, uh, but it's mandatory spending. Discretionary spending, mandatory spending. The, now, the budget, are you awake? Everybody awake? Is anybody here? The budget process, the 12 appropriations bills that make up the budget is for the most part thought out uh, in, in the discretionary spending bucket. But discretionary spending, like I said, only makes up about 26% of the entire budget. So, uh, where am I? The other bucket is the 8% for interest. And uh, that I'll try to explain. 
we have a $33 trillion debt. So when we run budget deficits, when we spend more money than the Internal Revenue Service collects in taxes, we're running a deficit, which is different from the debt. We have a budget deficit. So to pay for what we don't have, we issue bonds to investors who buy those bonds. So they give our government cash buying those bonds, and then those bonds are added to our $33 trillion debt. But to get people to buy our bonds or our debt, we have to make it attractive to them. So we pay them interest. And that interest on the entire $33 trillion debt comes to 8% of our annual budget. Think of your credit card, okay? Over the years, I racked up $33 trillion in credit card charges, buying bridges, howitzers, and cures for COVID. 8% of, and I'm not paying off my $33 trillion credit card balance. So every year, 8% of everything I spend goes towards paying interest on my $33 trillion credit card debt. And then there's the discretionary spending. Is everybody still awake? Do you hate me? This is what's going on in Washington. It, this is what's going on. Uh, it's boring, but it's important. It's like, it's life or death. It is. It's life or death. So there's discretionary spending. That's the, uh, uh, there's discretionary spending. There's the interest on the debt. And then the last bucket is uh, mandatory spending. So let me get to mandatory spending. Uh, okay, mandatory spending is spending that was ordered through previous legislation and must be paid each year. That's mandatory spending. That would be Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, SNAP. That would be the food stamps benefits, unemployment insurance, the earned income tax credit, and temporary assistance to needy families. That's all in the mandatory spending bucket. Mandatory spending is supposedly untouchable. It's considered the third rail. But Republicans are constantly trying to touch it. They want to cut SNAP benefits as well as temporary assistance to needy families. They will always fight cost of living adjustments on Social Security and are desperately trying to cut spending on Medicare, except when it comes to giving Medicare the power to negotiate drug prices. Republicans want to cut spending on Medicare, but they never, ever want to cut what Medicare overpays Big Pharma for the big ticket drugs, because Big Pharma is one of the Republican Party's biggest constituents. So that's mandatory spending, and that comprises 66% of our budget. That's the biggest chunk of spending, and they're really not arguing about that. 
And that's our budget. And right now, Congress can't decide what the top line will be on discretionary spending. Now, the Fiscal Responsibility Act, yeah, I'm going there. I'm really sorry. I, I, I am. Because this was like the fiscal responsibility. Remember the debt ceiling had to be raised in June? And we had to negotiate. And Biden and McCarthy and the government was going to shut down and everybody was going to get laid off. And we were going to default on the, the bonds. Remember that? Uh, I'm sorry, but we passed the Fiscal Responsibility Act back in June to lift the debt ceiling until January of 2025. And the Fiscal Responsibility Act from June, uh, it, Republicans and Democrats agreed that congressional spending could blow past the $33 trillion debt we already owe, past the debt ceiling. But Republicans and Democrats agreed that discretionary spending for the 2024 budget would be roughly $868 billion for defense and $703 billion for non-defense spending in that bucket of discretionary spending, right? Uh, and so... According to the Fiscal Responsibility Act passed in June, discretionary spending, $868 billion for defense, $703 billion for non-defense, depending on whether you're using a Democratic calculator or Republican calculator, discretionary spending, the top line for discretionary spending, would be $1.6 trillion total, if you're using a Republican calculator, if you're using a Democratic calculator, 1.7 trillion, 1.8 trillion. And that would be the top line for discretionary spending. What is the most we can spend this year is called the top line. And the 2024 budget was all ironed out in June with the Fiscal Responsibility Act, right? Which means the 2024 budget was supposed to be passed and initiated on October 1st of this year. Couldn't do it, even though we had a Fiscal Responsibility Act passed. Couldn't do it. So they keep passing these continuing resolutions while they still try to pass these spending bills, and yet they still can't agree on what the top line is. So no bills will be going into a conference committee before the Christmas holidays because they still can't agree on how much they're willing to spend. Now, if you're like me, if you're still awake, if you haven't unsubscribed to this channel, you hate this feculence. Uh, you're creative. You want to make things. You don't want to think about the costs. Your eyes are glazing over my eyes are glazing over. Uh, you know, it's like I, I'm, I'm directing a movie. I, I, I want to worry about the actors, the set design, the script, all the fun stuff that allows me to express my inner demons. Most people who go to Washington 
to be they 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 want to do the culture issues they you know the big th- they don't want to do the nuts and bolts of democracy which is spending what you spend defines who you are what you spend money on defines your values so but you don't want to think about that cuz you're creative you let the bean counters fight me but keep them out of my way Here's the thing. It's the evil bean counters, and most of them are evil, who decide how much of our money goes to schools and how much goes towards bombs we don't need. It's a matter of life and death. The bean counters get to decide who lives and who dies. And the bean counters want you and me, You want they want our eyes to glaze over. They want us to be confused So they invent terms like discretionary and non-discretionary spending, mandatory spending. They have their own exclusionary language to lock us out, to make us feel stupid, to prevent us from saying, where's my money, Henry? I want my money, Henry. Where's my money? Oh, Danny boy. So I'm always fascinated by people like Johnny Depp. Is anybody still here? Uh, Okay, now it's going to be a little more interesting. I went through the budget process. Uh, I'm always fascinated by people like Johnny Depp or Nicolas Cage, Billy Joel or Elton John, superstars, incredibly talented actors, musicians, who earned billions and then suddenly wake up to discover It's not just all gone, but they owe the government. Now, I don't know the specifics for Depp, Nicolas Cage, Elton John or Billy Joel. But I do know at one time, after generating hundreds of millions of dollars, they woke up and discovered they were broke. And I don't know what their tax situation was, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't good. Usually... always seems to be actors and rock stars. Uh, These people earn hundreds of millions of dollars only to discover one day they owe millions and millions of dollars. And I always ask, how is this possible? How do you go through 50, 100, 200 million dollars? And if you ask their accountants or their lawyers, how does this happen These smug pricks, these smug accountants and lawyers always have the same answer. How does it happen? Very easily. The accountants and lawyers blame their clients because they think of them as pampered prima donnas who have no concept of money. Whenever you read about a rock star, a musician, or an actor going broke, Their business manager, their accountants, their lawyers always say, what can I do? They have no concept of money. Yeah, they have no concept of money. Other than being able to generate billions of it, they have no concept of money. See, the accountants, the lawyers, the bean counters, what they do is they circle the wagons and always blame their clients. None of them stole it. The lawyers, the accountants, the business managers, impossible to imagine that they stole it or overbilled. 
possible. It's always the client's fault because why are you blaming the clients? Because they were stupid enough to come to them and say, look, I'm really good at generating cash. Can you protect that cash for me? And then the lawyers and the accountants and the business managers and the money managers say, absolutely, you just stick to being creative. We'll steal all your money. And then after they steal it, they blame the victim for being bad with money. Wait, it gets worse. It gets worse. Uh, after the money's all gone, the rock star, the actor, will hire what is called a forensic accountant and a forensic lawyer who are all in on the scam. But the artist doesn't know this. So the actor or the musician says, I want, I want to find out what happened. And the forensic accountants say, yes, we're going to help you sue to get all your money back. We're going to get to the bottom of this. So the forensic accountant and the forensic lawyer, they pretend to go through the books. And after they rack up enough billable hours, they come back to the client and say, yep, we think we, we have proof that your lawyers, your business manager, your accountant, your money manager, they stole it all. We think we have the goods. Oh, really? Okay. So uh, how much did they steal and when can we sue? Well, here's the thing. Uh, it's going to cost, it's going to end up costing you more than what was stolen from you to find out. Now, if you think I'm kidding, I'm not. They, they, they're, they're wiped out. They bring in forensic accountants and lawyers and attorneys, and they say, yep, we have proof you, you were robbed. Okay, how do I sue? Eh, you really shouldn't sue, because that's going to cost you more than what was stolen. That's how these monsters... Operate. The trick is to steal just enough so it's worth it not to sue you. It's not worth it to sue. Just steal just enough so it isn't worth the, the billable hours to sue you. The accountants, the forensic accountants, the lawyers, the business managers, they're all in on it. It is a racket. But here's the good news. Remember on Saturday's show, I told you about Trump's expert witness in the civil fraud trial, New York University Stern School of Business Research Professor Eli Bartov, who testified on Thursday in the civil fraud trial, and he's going to be testifying either today or tomorrow, that he spent 650 hours reviewing the Trump Organization's documents and saw absolutely no evidence of fraud. He was the expert hired by Donald Trump's lawyers. So when lawyers for the state attorney general asked Professor Bartoff, the expert, how much he was being paid for his so-called expertise— 
Professor Bartov, under oath, said $1,350. Not per week, not per day, per hour. And since he spent 650 hours pretending to review Trump's books... He was paid close to $900,000 for his expert testimony. You see why Donald Trump is in a permanent state of rage? Wouldn't you be? The guy has brought in hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars into his Save America pack, right? And hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars are going right back out the door to pay the lawyers and the accountants. We've tried to figure out what we think his legal fees are. They have to be hundreds of millions of dollars. uh, Half a day of testimony from this professor costs him a million dollars? Hundreds of millions of dollars have been donated to the Save America PAC since Trump lost in 2020. All of it has gone out the door to pay lawyers, accountants, lawyers and accountants. I I can't believe how level headed Donald Trump is. Everyone is taking his money. A lesser man would have snapped by now. As far as I'm concerned, Trump's the Dalai Lama. It's incredible how restrained his campaign rallies are, considering how much rage this guy has to be feeling. Hundreds of millions of dollars going to the worst people in the world, lawyers and forensic accountants and professors at NYU. Three divorces, right? Has it been three divorces? Countless bankruptcies. I think I counted six bankruptcies. And the man wants justice, so he keeps hiring. For the past 30, 40 years, Donald Trump has been hiring lawyers, accountants, who will say, yes, we think your lawyers and your other accountants and your other business managers all stole from you. So give us millions of dollars to look into it. And then they come back and say, you know, to prove it in a court of law, the legal fees will wipe you out. But the lawyers say the hell with the legal fees. This is about justice. Give us 20 million dollars and we'll get you justice. Uh, That's his world. That's his world. And they're all in on it. They're all in on it. Uh, Everybody says to Donald Trump, I'll get to the bottom of it. Pay me a million dollars. And after they pay, get the million dollars from Donald Trump, they say, you don't want to pursue this. (sighs) Uh, And it's all perfectly legal. Because it's lawyers and they write the laws And it's accountants, and they write the laws. And the laws are written so lawyers and accountants can steal your money. And you know who runs the Bar Association? 
lawyers, accountants. Look how hard it's been to get Rudy Giuliani disbarred. He still hasn't been disbarred. His law license has been suspended in New York and Washington, D.C. It's other lawyers judging lawyers. What does it take to get disbarred? Rudy Giuliani instigated an insurrection against the United States of America and the Washington, D.C. Bar Association is saying, yeah, we're still not certain we should suspend his license. We don't know if that would be fair. And that basically is the budget process. That's the way it works. You and I pay our taxes, and each year the government has no money for us. No money to forgive our kids' student loans, no money to increase the child tax tax credit to lift children out of poverty, no money to boost Social Security or Medicaid, improve Medicare or our schools. And when we ask what happened to all the money, the government accountants and the lawyers and whatever, they treat us like we're Elton John in the throes of a 1980s Coke bender. They say, oh, you spent it all. All of it? You're telling me I snorted $300 million worth of Coke? I should be dead. And the government just lies to us. And they say, no, you shoved it up your nose. Social Security and Medicare, all those entitlements. That's where it went. All those entitlements. That's what they call Medicare, Social Security, unemployment insurance. They call it, call it all entitlements to make us feel like we're spoiled rich kids who have a sense of entitlement to think that when we get old or sick or laid off from a job, that we should expect the money that we paid into Social Security, unemployment insurance, and Medicare to be there for us when we need it. That's a sense of entitlement to pay into all those programs. And then when we want to use it, we're we're entitled. It's our fault for having such a sense of entitlement. No, you stole it. The people who tell us that we have a sense of entitlement, they're the ones who are stealing it for the defense contractors, for Booz Allen. All the government contractors stole it. The thousands upon thousands of lobbyists on K Street stole it. We know they stole it. But we have no idea how to get it back. No idea, because the American people have been infantilized when it comes to the budget process. Don't worry, your pretty little head. You just keep generating cash and sending it each year to the Internal Revenue Service. And we've got people, smart people, to make sure it's all taken care of. Essentially, uh, you and I are Johnny Depp without the Amber Heard. At least Johnny Depp got to hang out with Amber Heard. We get nothing. Our tax dollars are sacred. That's our money. And if you don't give it to the government, they'll just take it. The government will take your car, your home, your kidney, they'll seize your bank accounts, 
but not before tacking on interest. It's your money. It's your government. And they keep us, they keep us from demanding answers by making us feel stupid for asking questions because of the language they use. They lock us out of the conversation by making it more complicated than it need be. They speak in that shorthand, that exclusionary shorthand that makes us feel stupid. So, nothing has been accomplished all year in Washington, D.C. Little different when Biden first took office. In 2021 and 2022, the Democrats were in charge of both houses of Congress. We had a Democratic president. And between 21 and 22, 2021 and 2022, Joe Biden and the Democrats passed the American Rescue Act. What was that? $1 trillion, $1.7 trillion pumped into the economy. The CHIPS Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, and the Inflation Reduction Act, all done between 2021 and 2022. These are historic spending bills pumping trillions into the economy with little to no effect on our debt or inflation. That is what a democratically controlled, responsible Congress and a Democratic president did for the American people. Monumental. A lot of things in there that, you know, we gave a lot of money to the fossil fuel industry and Booz Allen and McKinsey. I know. I know. But a lot of that money is going to the people who need it. And then the midterms. We lost, the Democrats lost the House last year. And right now, we, we still have an economy that's red hot with inflation under control, defying all expectations. But the House, because Democrats lost the House in the midterms, the House has been under Republican control for a year. And they have accomplished zero they promise to rein in spending, but they can't even get a budget out of their own committees. What did they do? Almost a year now. What did the Republicans do? They got rid of Kevin McCarthy. They got rid of George Santos. They censured Adam Schiff as retribution for his going after Trump. They censured Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian American serving in Congress, why did they censure her? Because she exercised her First Amendment rights, which Republicans insist are under assault, except when someone says something Republicans don't agree with, in which case, censor and censure away. They censured Democratic Congressman Jamal Bowman for pulling a fire alarm. And they passed the Fiscal Responsibility Act in June, which was supposed to make it easier to pass the 2024 budget by October. But there's no budget. All they did, basically, that was responsible was raise the debt ceiling, kicking and screaming, 
by passing the Fiscal Responsibility Act in June and contained within the Fiscal Responsibility Act were two compromises that McCarthy was able to squeeze out of Biden. In order to lift the debt ceiling back in June, Biden had agreed on some work requirements for food stamps, and he had to agree to trim a couple of billion dollars earmarked for the Internal Revenue Service. So, as we close out 2023, this new Republican-controlled Congress did this for the American people. Actually, they did this to the American people. They're going to make some of us work for food stamps because we can't afford food stamps. And we're going to cut funding for the one organization that makes it so we can afford food stamps by collecting taxes from the greedy billionaires and corporations, the Internal Revenue Service. We're going to cut funding for the Internal Revenue Service under the guise of fiscal responsibility. That is all the Republicans accomplished this year. As Republican firebrand Chip Roy from the Freedom Caucus keeps saying, name one thing we can go home and tell our constituents we accomplished. Nothing. Well, you did accomplish stuff, right? You, you, you're making people work for food stamps and you're defunding the IRS. Good luck winning the House back next year on that. So, how do you win the House back? What will the Speaker, Mike Johnson, try to get done before closing out 2023? Right? We're going to leave... Congress is going to go into recess accomplishing nothing between now and Thursday night. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm usually wrong. But I went over the agenda. Does anybody think they're going to get any of this done? Maybe they'll surprise us. Maybe. Odds are we won't be surprised. So what will the speaker try to get done before closing out 2023? He will take a motion to the House floor on Tuesday authorizing an official probe into impeaching Joe Biden. Now, there's been an unofficial probe authorized by then-Speaker Kevin McCarthy, and we've had three House committees, the Judiciary Committee, Ways and Means Committee, and the House Oversight Committee, investigating Hunter Biden in order to prove that Joe Biden benefited from Hunter Biden's business dealings, which nobody has been able to prove Nobody's been able to prove Hunter Biden's business dealings were illegal or that Joe Biden even benefited from them. But that won't stop Mike Johnson from bringing to the House floor on Tuesday a motion to authorize an official impeachment probe, a probe that will tie up the House on an impeachment vote next year when all those other things need to be addressed They're going to tie up the House on an impeachment vote, impeachment probe, and then maybe there'll be a trial in the Senate where they will never convict Joe Biden. 
I got it wrong on Saturday's show. Thank you for correcting me. It takes two-thirds of the Senate to convict. I said they needed 60 to convict. You need two-thirds of the Senate. Biden isn't going to be removed from office when they put him on trial, if they decide to impeach him. But the Republicans can't accomplish anything other than destroying Hunter Biden's life and wasting our time by distracting us on a phony impeachment to convince just enough low information voters that Joe Biden is corrupt and that Republicans are looking out for us. If you're a low information voter, you see smoke and think there's fire. Before I go, I want to issue another correction. I just refer to Republicans as low information voters. I want to correct that. When you consider that they're going to spend $7 trillion on the next budget, our money, when you consider that most of that money will be spent on bombs that the military doesn't need, subsidies for big ag, big pharma, big oil, and of course the health insurance companies, when you consider that most of that $7 trillion will be spent subsidizing food that kills us, subsidizing drug companies that kill us by overcharging us for the drugs that we need, drugs that we are subsidizing, subsidizing the fossil fuel industry, destroying our planet, subsidizing the health insurance companies that are killing us. We subsidize. We give hundreds of billions of dollars to the health insurance companies in our tax dollars. Not, I'm not talking about out of pocket. The government is giving hundreds of billions of dollars to the health insurance companies. When you consider that most of the $7 trillion that we're going to spend in 2024 goes towards all the people who are killing us, including the gun manufacturers, we subsidize the gun manufacturers. The same people who sell AR-15s to serial killers, those are the same companies that get money from our military. Our military buys the AR-15s from the same people who sell those AR-15s to serial killers. When you consider that most of that $7 trillion go to the corporations and billionaires who are killing us, I have to apologize for saying it's the Republicans who are low information voters. Not just the Republicans. The fact that we allow this, that we don't demand a say in the budget process, the fact that we don't demand a budget process that is simple and easy to understand, then all of us are low information voters, not just Republicans. In fact, we're worse than low information voters. We are damn fools. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Thank you for listening to this. I know it's dry, uh, but 
what can I tell you? If you're still with me, thank you for, if you're still with me, thank you for sticking it out. Now put it back in. Put it back in. Thank you to the mods, if they're still awake. Thank you to Bob and Autumn. And uh, please subscribe to my newsletter as well as my, my channel. Please like this episode. That's the best way I can remain in your feed is if you like this. And uh, please share it. Maybe watch some of it over again so you're fluent in the budget process. Thank you. I, Saturday show was chock-filled with gossip. It was all gossip. It was all sizzle. There was no substance to Saturday's show. It was nasty gossip. So I evened things out. Goodbye.